Uh, just before I begin, this is technology take two. See whether this is working. Have we got it? Are you black? Yeah, you can put it up. See if it works. Oh, it's not on black. That's weird. Okay, see? Now I've broken it. Are you, are you up? You can see it, but you can't see it. Okay. That's strange. Just go back and then come back in again. It should be there. If he can see it, you should be able to see it. Sorry, for the people at home, they can't see my slides here. But they don't really need to see them. You're the important audience, so... <laughs> For the people in the building, I have an important announcement. A key was found with a little yellow border on it. And so if anybody has lost a yellow key, maybe you at home lost it. That would be a trick. But um, if anybody's lost a yellow key, then I have it. Um, and we'll get that to you. Um, I don't know why that's not working. We'll make do without it. Um, technology, got to love it. Um, we're continuing our series on Jonah. And it, the overarching theme on Jonah that we are continuing to sort of investigate is that Jonah is an imperfect prophet and we are imperfect disciples. Jonah is in a stage of spiritual decline and God needs to encounter Jonah in his stage of, of, of decline. And what we're hoping to learn from this is, A, recognizing that we can be in decline, but then, B, how we begin to turn around our spiritual decline. And so, in Jonah chapter 1, last week, we looked at, Jonah chapter 1 is, is Jonah going down, right? It's down, 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 down for Jonah. And we recognized some of the, the marks or the symptoms of spiritual decline last week. Now, in Jonah chapter 2, we can start to look for marks of revival. What happens in our life that are indicators that we've started to turn around? And I call it this message, uh, the imperfect prayer, because Jonah chapter 2 is an entire chapter of Jonah praying. But it is not a perfect prayer. Now, I'm going to read Jonah chapter 2 to you. It's only 10 verses. And you'll hear Jonah praying. And we'll, we'll learn from this prayer several things. So let me just begin by reading God's word. Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. Now, one of the most important sort of overarching themes or lessons in the Old Testament, and even the whole Bible, is conveyed to us over and over and over again. And it's this lesson that Jonah amplifies for us. It's that God is God, and we are not. God is perfect, 
and we are imperfect. There's barely an event or incident in Scripture that does not in some way lift up this reality to us that we are imperfect creatures dependent on a perfect God, that we are a rebellious creation that relies on a gracious God. The lesson teaches us that God is patient, merciful, full of grace, forgiving, a redeemer, a rescuer. And it also teaches us over and over again that we are imperfect, stubborn, faithless, rebellious, though we are. God accepts our imperfect and misguided attempts at obedience. And he accepts them and responds to them almost as if they are fully righteous and fully perfect towards him. There's no great mystery in a God that merely rescues the worthy, but there's confounding grace in a God that forgives sinners while they still hate him. And so the Bible repeats this lesson over and over and over again, and Jonah kind of amplifies it. Jonah is an imperfect prophet. He's a prodigal prophet. He is not praying a perfect prayer, but God is going to accept it anyway. And so we see ourselves in Jonah, and we see God as God. We see the same thing in Abraham, in Moses, in Noah, in Gideon, in Samson, in David, in Solomon. You name it. The Bible is a rogues gallery of faltering attempts by failing people. And yet the story of the Bible over and over and over again is that God redeems those failing, imperfect people. And Jonah is no different. The message of Jonah is all about God's grace and his mercy and his salvation. The message of Jonah is about us, and the message of Jonah is that halting and imperfect and unworthy though we are, we are still rescued. So if Jonah, if chapter 1 of Jonah saw him in steep decline, you know, he went down to the port of Joppa, he went down into the boat, he went down into the hold of the boat, he went down into a senseless sleep, and then from there he went down into the sea and down the throat of a fish. Jonah in spiritual decline, chapter 2 is the beginning of spiritual revival. It's about spiritual redemption. It's about prayer, which we're going to pray on Wednesday and invite you to come on Wednesday, the first Wednesday of every month, for that spiritual revival that comes from our engagement with God in prayer. And so today we're going to focus on four marks of spiritual revival or reversal. If you find yourself in spiritual decline, if you find yourself like Jonah, feeling your imperfection especially keenly, if you feel like Jonah that you are a prodigal disciple, a prodigal prophet, and you need that spiritual revival, we will see four marks of spiritual renewal in Jonah's prayer. But it's also important to understand that it's not a perfect prayer. That Jonah is not a perfect prophet that he is as flawed as we are. And it's important to see these things because in these flaws we see ourselves and perhaps avoid them. But at the same time, by acknowledging the flaws in Jonah and in his prayer even, then we are encouraged that even if our prayers are flawed, God is no less able to save because it's his grace, not our perfection, that qualifies us for redemption. So let's just start quickly with three flaws in this prayer of Jonah. First of all, Jonah blames God for his own circumstances. It doesn't take long in Jonah's prayer to get to the finger pointing. In verse 3 and 4, he says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and I am driven away from your sight. Okay, wait now. Whose actions are it that put Jonah into the sea? Who was it that was running from the sight of God? God did not put Jonah in the sea. Jonah did. 
God did not drive Jonah away from his sight. God, in fact, was pursuing Jonah to keep him in his sight. And yet Jonah says, you threw me into the sea, you drove me out of your presence. Well, that is not true. And how often do we do this as flawed disciples and imperfect disciples in the calamity of our lives? We, we come to God and we say things like, God, why have you left me poor and without friends? And, and, it, and if I were God, and thankfully I'm not because the sarcasm would be hard to avoid in response, I would say if I was God in that case, I've got you like three jobs in the last six months and you argued with your manager over nothing. You showed up late nine times at the second job and in the third job you actually punched a coworker. The fact that you don't have a job is not my fault. You have cost yourself the job. Why don't you have friends? Because you are a miserable person to be around. I have brought all kinds of people into your life. You're at a church with 200 extremely gracious and friendly people. If you can't make friends with them, I don't know what to do. Right? Isn't it good I'm not God? God is far more gracious than that. He doesn't even acknowledge Jonah's finger pointing in his prayer. Right? I'm not saying God never puts challenges into our lives, but and never causes us to grow in our faith through those challenges. But people sitting in my office 19 times out of 20, I am counseling through the complications of their life's choices, not God's providence in their life. If Jonah comes to me for counseling, I'm not saying, oh yeah, you got a really raw deal from God. I'd be saying, Jonah, you made some bad choices, and that's why you're struggling the way you're struggling. And so don't blame God for your disobedience. Don't blame God for your circumstances. It is not the normal case that God is punishing you. Normally it is our choices. But Jonah's prayer is imperfect because we do the same thing. We quickly get to blaming God for our circumstances when, in fact, we put ourselves there. Secondly, the other reason that this prayer is imperfect is that Jonah is only praying because he's in trouble. Verse 7 says, When my life was... Fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. This is a classic imperfect disciple prayer. Jonah had no interest in praying. He had no interest in talking to God. Even when the pagan sailors in chapter 1 were praying to their gods, and the captain said to him, Jonah, why don't you pray to your God? Jonah had no interest. But now he's thrown into the sea. Now he's in the belly of a fish. Now he sees death staring him straight in the face, and he is ready to finally go to God in prayer. And again, to apply it, how often to us as imperfect disciples, when things are good and we think that things are going our way, we have no need to pray, no need for God until things go very bad. And suddenly God is on speed dial. First we blame him for our circumstances, and then we finally admit that we really need him, and we start to pray. It's like a parent who only hears from their children when they need money. Now, God is a good, 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 good father. And so he will answer that prayer, make no mistake. God listens to these prayers, even in our desperation, and he will listen to Jonah's prayer and answer it. That's the whole point of a perfect God who is gracious to imperfect people. But you know what would have helped Jonah? If he had prayed to God and had fellowship with God when his life was not a disaster. You know what is helpful to us as disciples? is if we don't wait until our life is in calamity to pray to God. If we pray regularly with God and have a relationship with God before the calamity comes, it may not come in the first place. For disciples, God should be the first place we turn, not the last place. It's interesting and kind of frustrating why, and I do this myself, 
We try every futile human solution to our problem until finally as a last resort going to God. Why don't we learn to go to God first with our problem? Because he can solve it instead of wasting attempts with futile human solutions. But that's what Jonah does. He tries to solve it his way until he's finally desperate, and then he goes to God. So it's flawed in that way. But thirdly, Jonah, Jonah's prayer is flawed because and even God's answer doesn't really change his heart. So Jonah prays to God, he receives an answer, and yet he still doesn't change. And this point is not explicitly uh, in this text, but in chapters 3 and 4, you would think a prayer like this, Jonah would be super prophet again, right? Like he's just prayed out to God. God's rescued him from the belly of the fish. You think he would be on fire for God and just like ready to take on the world. He'd be like Elijah or Elisha at the high point of their careers. He prayed for salvation and God delivered it. So, So you would think that Jonah would be overflowing with the message of salvation that he received himself. But in chapters 3 and 4, after this passionate prayer and God's delivering 100% on his request, Jonah just basically shakes off the fish guts and grumbles all the way through Nineveh and then sulks for days and days and days outside the city. So this is an imperfect prayer from an imperfect prophet because as faithful as or sincere maybe as this prayer should be and is, It doesn't actually change Jonah's heart very much. It's just the beginning of spiritual revival. It's not a full spiritual revival. And so he doesn't have the joy that he should have. So we we start off by just acknowledging that this is an imperfect prayer, like all of our prayers are. None of us pray perfectly. But within this imperfect prayer are the marks of spiritual revival that we want to focus on today and renewal and redirection that Jonah needs. And so let's acknowledge the lesson that we can learn from its imperfections, but also let's take hold of the four marks of revival that are present in this prayer and that begin the turning of Jonah from going down to at least rising up. When we stop going down and start ascending again, So there's four marks of reversing spiritual decline. And the first one is that Jonah found himself humbled under the hand of God. It says in verses 3 to 6, well, first of all, he's physically in danger. Um, It says that he's thrown into the sea, that he's going down, the weeds are wrapped around his head, he's entangled, he's into Sheol, which bars the gates against him. And so he's in this physical danger. But the physical danger is a picture of the spiritual danger that Jonah knows that he's in. The reality of this imagery is that Jonah is being drowned under the waves of God's presence. He says, your waves, he says, your billows have come over me. Now, to be clear, Jonah put himself in this situation. As we noticed, he caused God to pursue him with the storm, and the waves and the sea are his fault. Yet, he feels now the spiritual reality. He says, I've been banished from your sight. Jonah's real problem here is not that he's been thrown into the sea or even swallowed by a fish. Jonah's real problem, which he finally recognizes and discovers, is, is that he's been running away. And he realizes that maybe his running away worked a little too well. And that he doesn't actually want to be out of God's sight after all. And so he's turning back to God. He's humbled under the hand of God. God's pursuing him has worked. It's woken Jonah up, and he's humbled himself. He doesn't want to run and go his own way anymore. He wants to go God's way. And so 
God uses and arranges the circumstances of our disobedience in order for us to feel the weight of the consequences of selfishness and self-direction. It will be our choices that get us where we got to in our life. And yet God will eventually break through and he will eventually give us opportunity to humble ourselves. Jonah pridefully went his own way in chapter 1. But Jonah is humbled before a pursuing God in chapter 2. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. You see, Jonah, the first mark of spiritual renewal or, or spiritual revival is a humbling under the hand of God. We get ourselves into a situation where God's hand is just so heavy on us that we realize we've been arrogant, we've been selfish, we've been prideful, we've been rebellious, and the humbling hand of God finally rests on us to the point where we realize we need to humble ourselves and pray. And if we pray and turn from our arrogance and our wickedness, then God will hear. And so our spiritual decline begins to turn around when we're humbled and are humble before God. Secondly, we see a second mark for reversing spiritual decline in that Jonah desired again the presence of God. What Jonah refused to do in chapter 1, despite the sailor's example, is all he can do in chapter 2. The whole chapter, except for the first and last verse, is a prayer. Jonah finally desires to be present with God again. He says in verses 1 to 2 and in 4 and in 7, he says, he called out to God. He says, I will look to your holy temple. My prayer came to you in your temple. He was humbled under the hand of God, but now realized that God was lifting him up out of the pit. And so Jonah now desires the presence of God that he was fleeing. In the temple, in the Old Testament, is how God's people got into the presence of God. It's it's where God's spirit descended physically. And so Jonah prays here in chapter 2 in the spirit of the temple. Right? He says, my prayer came to you in your temple. He says, I'll look to your holy temple. The temple to Jonah is the presence of God, and he wants to be there in the presence of God. He's in the belly of a fish. He can't get to the temple, but he's like, that's where my prayer is going. That's where I'm going in spirit. I want to be present with you, God, in the temple. If we apply that to ourselves, we recognize that our own spiritual restoration includes a renewed desire for prayer and for God's close presence. While we're in spiritual decline and while we are far from God, the last thing we want to do is pray and come into his presence. But when we are in this stage of spiritual renewal, we are seeking God's presence. And the best Jonah could do is pray towards the temple and pray towards the presence of God. But we have the presence of God. The temple is no longer a physical place where people have to go to encounter the Spirit of God or to encounter him in a special way. In the New Testament, we're told that God's people are his temple. And where one or two are gathered, there the Spirit of Christ is also. And so this Wednesday, the first Wednesday of every month, we're going to gather to pray. We have this incredible blessing that Jonah didn't have in the belly of the fish and that no longer exists at the temple. We have the presence of God in a very unique way when we are gathered in his name. 
And as a response to this message, you'll actually have an opportunity, and you want to think about that now, grab a pen and a paper if you have one with you, to write down some prayer requests. And we want to do that the Sunday before the first Sunday of every Wednesday so that your prayer requests, even if you don't follow them to the Wednesday meeting, we will take them at the Wednesday meeting and pray for them. It's an opportunity in a unique and special way to be in the presence of God. But that's the second mark of spiritual revival, a reversing spiritual decline, is a renewed desire for prayer and for God's close presence. But there's a third mark for this reversing of spiritual decline. Thirdly, Jonah relies again on God's word. It's interesting, if you take the first verse and the last verse out of Jonah chapter 2 and just give, give it to somebody, give them verses 3 to 9, and you ask them, what book of the Bible is this from? They just read it cold, not knowing where it's from, and they just read it. If they don't immediately recognize it as Jonah, I will hazard a guess that 19 times out of 20, they are going to guess that it is from the book of Psalms. Just look at the phrasing in Jonah chapter 1 of his prayer. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. The waters closed over me to take my life. I went down to the land whose bars closed over me. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It just sounds like a psalm. And there's a reason for that, because he's almost quoting verbatim Psalm 3 4, Psalm 121, Psalm 118, Psalm 42, Psalm 88 6 7, Psalm 131 6, Psalm 50 14, and Psalm 3 8. You see, the truth is, this, almost this entire prayer is from portions of the Psalms that Jonah would have memorized. There's actually hardly an original word from Jonah in this prayer. Jonah is now no longer fleeing from the word of the Lord, but in fact clinging to the word of the Lord. Jonah doesn't want to run from the word of the Lord. Jonah is running into the word of the Lord in order to be in his presence. Jonah's mind is flooded with God's word. And so when we think of our own spiritual decline and spiritual renewal, a third mark of spiritual renewal and the beginning of spiritual revival, when we're spiritually awakened, it comes with an increased hunger and fresh dependence on God's Word. You just want more of God's Word into you. You want to read it, you want to memorize it, you want to study it, you want to speak it, you want to hear it, you want it preached to you. You just wish it was all in there so you could get it all at once. Whenever there's a spiritual revival anywhere among God's people, there's two things that people always want in a spiritual revival. And if you go read about any of the great revivals of history, you will see this common thing repeated. They want meetings for prayer, and they want the preaching of God's Word. You go look at any historical revival, and they will be hallmarked by prayer meeting, prayer meeting, prayer meeting, preaching, preaching, preaching. People going to the church seven days a week to hear preaching. People going to the church seven days, twice a day to pray. That's revival. And that's what we see here. Jonah finally comes to pray, and he prays God's word. He wants God's word. It happens for a city, it can happen for a country, but it also happens in an individual life. Just as dramatically as those historic revivals, an individual disciple can turn away from the presence and turn away from the Word of God and be in spiritual decline the way that Jonah is. 
But then in the same way, there can come this sudden dramatic revival and hunger and, and heart to be present with God and to feast on His Word, both written and preached. So spiritual decline, as we've seen, begins first with humility, being humbled under the hand of God. It's marked by a return to God's presence in prayer. And thirdly, a hunger for His Word. And finally, the fourth mark of spiritual revival in our life, to see renewal happen, Jonah becomes recommitted to obedience. He says in verse 9, he says, With thanksgiving I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Unlike chapter 1, when the pagan sailors made vows and sacrifices, Jonah didn't. Now, Jonah has begun to turn and to recommit and to thankfully sacrifice and pay. The price he must pay in obedience, Jonah figures, is nothing that would cause him not to be thankful. Nothing God asks or desires of us would cause us harm but joy, so that we can be thankful in our obedience. Jonah's disobedience only caused him trouble, and happy is the disciple who chooses obedience instead. So Jonah, in the first moments of his revival, is shifting his behavior back in line with obedience, with what he knows to be true of God, that God is better than idols, he says in verse 8, that there is no hope in idolatry, he says there, that there is only hope in the steadfast, enduring, pursuing, limitless love of God. He says, with thanksgiving I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. Jonah is returning to obedience. Well, let's think about ourselves and our own spiritual need for revival. Why does Jonah run in the first place? Why does anyone run from God? Why do we run from God? Well, it's because they either think that there is hope in some other way or that they love something else more. That's why Jonah touches on hope and love here. He says there is no hope in idols. There's only hope in the steadfast love of God. And when a disciple turns away from God and runs away in disobedience, it almost always has to do with either hope or love. They say, I put the hope of my life on this thing, and I'm going to pursue that. Or I love this thing more than God. And so I'm going to pursue this thing that I love more than God. I love something else. I hope in something else. I will go my way. I will disobey God and obey my desire. But the mark of spiritual turning, of spiritual recovery, is that a person's hope and love return to God. Only God's love is steadfast. Only our hope in God never fails. And Jonah begins to obey God rather than obey his own desire. Now, none of Jonah's recoveries, none of Jonah's renewals are anywhere near complete. He's humbled under the hand of God. He wants to return to the presence of God, and he begins to pray. He wants the Word of God, and so he, he's praying almost entirely the Word of God. He's clinging to the Word of God, and he's revowing. He's saying, I, I'll do what you told me to do. I'll renew my vow, and I will obey, thankfully, God. But in spite of all of this revival, in spite of all of the hope of this prayer, Jonah's recoveries aren't anywhere near complete. He's still a long way from where God would have his heart, but it is the turning point. It's the turning point in Jonah's life. And that is in many ways the main point of this whole chapter and this whole book, that God sets the stage for Jonah to turn. Even while Jonah is running, even while Jonah is sinning, even while he is being disobedient, God sets the stage for Jonah's heart to turn just a little bit. 
And as soon as Jonah's heart starts to turn, even with this imperfect prayer where he's blaming God and doesn't really come full circle and change his life around, God accepts the feeblest, smallest, most hedging kind of turning that Jonah offers. And that's the lesson about God. We have all these lessons here about us as imperfect prophets, imperfect disciples, imperfect servants, But this is the lesson about God. This is the mark of a gracious God and the kind of gracious God that we have. Isaiah 42, 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. That's the the message of Jonah chapter 2, right? I mean, this flawed prayer, this kind of halting you know, yeah, Lord, I'll do what I vow, even though we know in chapter 3 and 4 that he only very grudgingly does what he vowed. He hasn't really changed his heart. But God doesn't reject it. God ignores the finger pointing. God accepts the prayer. God accepts the grudging obedience. Because a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench, he will faithfully bring forth justice. God will be just. God will be right with Jonah. Even as bruised and weak and faint as Jonah's start of his revival is. In the New Testament, Jesus says it this way in Mark 9. He says, All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. (laughs) That's the God that we serve. That's Jonah, right? Yeah, I believe God. Just help me in my unbelief. We run from God. We shake our fist at God. We think we have a better way. We want our way, not God's way. And yet, in order for spiritual renewal to begin, as rebellious and disobedient and as far from God as we may think we have run, and as much calamity and distress as may be in our life... The lesson of Jonah chapter 2 is that all it takes is the faith of a mustard seed. All it takes is a weak and broken reed. It takes a flickering ember, just a spark of calling out to God. A tiny little bit of trust in the midst of an ocean of doubt will begin our revival. Because God is faithful. It's not the perfection of our prayer. It's not the perfection of our doctrine. It's not the strength of our faith. It is the perfection and the grace and the mercy of God that revives us. This prayer is far from perfect, but God is faithful to begin what he has begun, to give us what we don't have. And so we can call out to God. We can call out to him from our darkest pit, and he will answer and lift us up. Jonah gives us an opportunity to check ourselves in the mirror. Do we have these marks of revival in our own life? We might not even recognize that we are as far from God that we are. I mean, Jonah knew he was running from God. Jonah knew that he was far from God. Jonah was very clear what he was all about. I think for most of us, though, we're in spiritual decline quite often and don't even realize it. We're in spiritual decline, and we've just sort of drifted. We haven't sailed away from God. We've just kind of been sitting in our boat, and it's drifted away from him. But we realize that we kind of want our own way. We realize that we don't really pray all that often anymore, we're not in the presence of God, that we don't really thirst for his word, that we're not wanting and desiring to understand his word, and that we're not necessarily seeking to obey him. We've drifted. And so we can hold ourselves up to the mirror of this chapter and say, are these marks of spiritual renewal in my life? Am I constantly being renewed 
by being humbled before God and praying to Him and being in His Word and seeking His obedience and choosing His way over my way? Think about that. That's the mirror that's before us. And we get this amazing opportunity in communion now to, to basically really put ourselves in the presence of God. That, that we get to pray out to God and to seek His will for our life. And so as you think about Jonah and you think about spiritual renewal, you can be thinking about prayers that you might bring to God, and they can be imperfect. They can be as faltering, as halting, as hedged as Jonah's prayers. But God wants you in his presence. He wants to hear them. He wants even the bruised wick, even the smoldering flame of your faith to be directed towards him. And he is a God so gracious to return your spirit and your faith and your renewal and have you rise up again. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jonah again. And we know that even though in this book (laughs) he maps out for us the very halting obedience and the very grudging response despite his salvation to to his prayer and your salvation, but we know that he wrote this book, gave this book, gave this part of his life to be in your scripture. And so we know that after this, that Jonah returned once again to some measure to that early life that he had with you, that spiritual revival, that he wanted us as future disciples to learn from his life, to say, look at me and don't make my mistakes. But more importantly, look at me and hope in the same God who is faithful even to one like myself. He will be faithful to you. So, Father, we thank you for this message of Jonah. We thank you for chapter 2, the template of this imperfect prayer, which is so full of your word, desperate for your salvation. We can only seek to pray in some way like this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.